Yeah, isn't that good? Man, <laughs> what, a great, uh, what a great video. And again, it's great to be here with you all today. Excited to, to bring uh, God's word to you. Um, would you all stand actually with me as we, <clears throat> as we read uh, from God's word? Our scripture reading today is going to be from the book of 1 John chapter 2. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light, and yet hates his brother, is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness, and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I've written to you, children, because you know the Father. I've written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Yeah, as you can see from, uh, from the video here, we're in sort of the upfront part of a series for the month of December called The Arrival, and the reason we're calling it that is because Christians, you may know, for centuries have also called Christmas, the Christmas season by another name. They've called it the Advent, the Advent, which is a word that just means the coming of or the arrival of. And so by calling the Christmas season the Advent, Christians have said, they've insisted that something has arrived, something new has arrived in the world with Jesus. And so each week in each chapter this month from the book of First John, which is a letter written by an eyewitness to the life of Jesus, we're going to see something that the writer John has said has arrived at Christmas with Jesus. And so to see here what John is saying in chapter 2 is arrive with Jesus, uh, to set this up, I want to take us all back to a place. Uh, for most of us, this was a place in the past. Maybe for some of us, it's a place in our present. Perhaps for a small handful, it's a place in our future. But no matter if it was in your past or if it is your present or it will be your future, this place, I'm about to show you in just a moment, this place is probably a place that's going to elicit some strong emotions in you. Maybe some some flashbacks, maybe some memories, maybe some good, maybe some not so good. And that place is this place. Here we go. You can show it to him. Yeah, here it is. It's the high school or middle school cafeteria. High school cafeteria. We'd all, of course, probably have different reactions to that place. Some of you laughed. Some of you stared blankly, wondering what in the world this has to do with anything with the Bible. Uh, uh, some of you, maybe just internally, you sort of flash back in a negative way because of all the very real difficult memories that place conjures up. But let me ask you, do you remember what it was like to walk into that place? What it was like to walk into that place? I'm not talking about all the amazing High school cafeteria smells. 
Not those. I'm talking about what it was like to walk into a room full of people and not know where you should sit or where you belong. Now, for some of us, when we walked into that place, into that cafeteria, the choice was already made as to where we were going to sit. Because for some of us, that choice was already made based upon the color of our skin. Some of us went over there, that group went over there, we joined this group or that group. Or for some of us, the choice was made based on how smart we were, how well we did in school. Because, you know, the kids with the good grades sat over there, maybe we (laughs) didn't, we sat over there, maybe the choice was made based on whether you were a jock. The athletes sat there and maybe you wanted to sit with them, but you couldn't because you didn't make the team. Or maybe some of you wanted to sit with the goths because you thought they were cool, but you didn't because you didn't wear the right, I don't know, outfit or eyeliner or whatever. Uh, you know, uh, Maybe some of us actually ended up sitting all alone. We didn't know where we, we fit in. Or maybe you know, some of us wanted to sit with the rich kids, but we couldn't because we didn't dress nice enough or have a nice enough car. But you know, think about all of that. Think about how it felt in that moment. Now, let me ask you this. Looking back, how ridiculous was it that people were separated like that along the lines of appearance or skin color or, or smarts or athletic ability or, or, or whatever? I mean, how crazy How not important, looking back, was it that we made such hardcore distinctions on people based upon things like appearance, skin color, popularity? I mean, looking back, for those of you who never have to walk into that place anymore, and some of you are saying, man, thank God for that. But looking back on that, doesn't it seem so silly, so unimportant, so immature, maybe even hurtful, that we divided people along lines like that? Yeah, it is. Now let me ask you, isn't it a good thing we all grew up and we don't do that anymore? Isn't it a good thing we all matured and we grew and we learned our lesson and we just all got along? Oh, wait, the truth is we still do this, don't we, in many ways? We do, yeah. A generation ago, in 1976, the year that Jimmy Carter won the presidential election, this is a true statement, only only 25% of Americans lived in a county where the candidate that won that county won it by a landslide. Now, flash forward to the previous presidential election, 2016, that number over the years grew to where it was now in the last election, 60%, which means 60% of people in the United States live in a county where the candidate that won that county won it by a landslide. Matter of fact, more than 50% won it by a super landslide, which would, of course, include the county that our church is in, Travis County, which means this, a few things. Even as our country gets more and more diverse, we're becoming more and more polarized. Our country is becoming, at the same time, both increasingly liberal and increasingly conservative, both at the same time. So if you're here and you're saying, man, it feels like the country is just getting more and more liberal, according to your perspective, the truth is, that's correct. On the other hand, if you feel like, man, this country is getting increasingly conservative, that's also true. The point is, the middle is going away. Now, there are many, many reasons, of course, why this happens. But even as we become more ethnically diverse, we're becoming more and more polarized around what we think, which by these statistics shows that it's driving where we live. And that results in a drive as to where we go to church. 
Now, there are many reasons, of course, why people live where they live, many reasons why people's churches look the way they do in terms of race or income status or political leaning or social interests. And some of those reasons are good reasons, they're valuable reasons, they're meaningful reasons, they're legitimate reasons. But on the other hand, sometimes there are also bad reasons why that kind of thing happens because of racialized, discriminatory housing practices, the way our country has built roads and infrastructure, that drives where people live and where they sometimes go to church. But good reasons or bad reasons, here's my question today, is that the way we want it to be? Is that the way we want it to be? Are we satisfied with that? That's what I'm going to talk about today. So if you're here, and at this point, you're not a Christian, somebody drug you in, you're here with a family member, you're new, you're poking tires here. You know, if that's you, you can just listen in on this next part. That's cool. That's our deal here. All right. But if you're a Christian, let me tell you, this next part is so important for you to get. If you call yourself a Jesus follower, this next part is so important because the writer here, we're about to see his words, John, he was an eyewitness to uh, and a follower of the life of the person of Jesus. And the writer of this letter we now call first John, he has something to say to people who would call themselves Christ followers as well, because lots of people in John's day were asking this question. They were asking, John, how do we know if someone really knows God? John, how do we know if someone is really following God? Because lots of people are claiming that. John, there's lots of people who say they're following God. But John, you were really there. You really sought. You were really up close and personal with the life of Jesus. John, what can you give us as a kind of litmus test to show us whether or not a person really knows God? And so now John, he's an old man. He's likely outlived all his contemporaries, all his peers. They've all been martyred for the sake of Christ, for claiming they saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. John is thinking about what he wants to leave behind, and he picks up his pen, and he writes this. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So we should ask, well then, well, how did Jesus walk? I mean, that's the question, right? You read this, it begs the question, how did Jesus walk? Well, let's just take it literally. You could take that figuratively as well, but literally, when Jesus walked around on planet Earth, how did he walk? If we're supposed to walk like that, another way of putting it would be, when Jesus Christ came to Earth, when God came to the planet, in the form of Jesus, as Christians have always held. Here's the question. Who would he eat with at his lunch table? Who would he eat with? Would Jesus show us a God, like all the other gods of all the other nations who only favored those who look like him, who only walk with those like him, who only loved those just like they were? Or would Jesus show us something else? Jesus showed us a God who walked with, who sat with, ate with people, of course, dramatically unlike him. People like the person of Matthew. He was a rich tax collector, a betrayer of his own people. But that's, that's like crazy because who would eat? Who would walk with a person like that? I mean, shouldn't people who profit off other people's pain on purpose, shouldn't they deserve to eat by themselves? Oh, Jesus showed us a God who walked with people like Simon the zealot, who was a nationalist, come on, someone who prized his nation, his ethnic group, his religion first, but why would Jesus get involved with the life of a nationalist? Shouldn't people who call down violence on other ethnic groups, shouldn't they deserve to eat and walk 
by themselves. Jesus showed us a God who walked with you, sat with you, ate with people, scandalous people, women like Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons, the Bible says, and had the reputation to prove it. And he showed us a God who touched the leper, but who would touch the poor leper? I mean, don't people know that lepers were cursed by God? Shouldn't they deserve to eat by themselves? Oh, Jesus showed us a God who who sat with, who ate with, who walked with religious hypocrites. Like Simon the Pharisee, he ate in the home of the very one who insulted him to his face and would later betray him to his own death. But that's, that's like crazy. Who eats with? Who sits with people who betray them to their death? Shouldn't people like that deserve to sit alone? Not if you're Jesus. Not if you came to show the world what God is like and who God loves. Do we walk like Jesus. So John says we can truly know if we're walking like that if, 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 if we don't just sit at tables full of people just like us. But John, of course, they got to be asking, you know, John, what can help us do that? I mean, that's a really whole tar, tall order. I mean, it's a hard thing. John, what could you tell us about walking with Jesus that can help us walk like that? John goes on, verse 7, he says, Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you. So John's saying, what can help us walk like Jesus, not just sit at tables full of people like ourselves, is this new commandment that Jesus gave him, And on one hand, he's saying, well, it's not new because he's saying, if you've been around, if you've been around the Christian faith from the beginning, this is what you've heard. On the other hand, he's saying, well, it is new because for some of you, this is the first time you've ever thought like this. This is the first time you've ever thought about walking like this because no one before Jesus ever had the guts or the right to give a new command, a new law since the time of Moses. But Jesus did. So this commandment was old for some in John's day, but new for others, but old or new, all of us, John, what he's doing here is referencing, he's calling up the words of Jesus Christ in the upper room from John chapter 13, where Jesus said this, a new commandment I give to you all, it's plural, that you all love one another, even as I've loved you all. Now in the South, that word is y'all. We like that. It's a much better word. English is a great language. That you also, you all also love one another. By this, all people, all men will know that you are my disciples if you all have love for one another. Love one another. That's the simple, that's the new commandment John's referring to here. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that in a church, in a group, we don't call sin, sin. Come on. That means we don't critique what what needs to be critiqued. That doesn't mean we don't confront or call things out because we should, because we must. But here's the point. In a group setting, in a church, you can't actually do that and have it create change in someone's life until they know it's coming from a place of love. And so for church, us to really look like this, to walk like this, if we're to know that we are really in Jesus, John is saying in a way, all right, all right, you're going to have to prove it. You're going to have to prove it by who you eat with, by who you sit with, by who is at your table. See, therefore, what has arrived with Jesus, here it is, is a new foundation for relationships. 
a new foundation for relationships. What he brought into the world was a brand new way to relate to one another. What's arrived with him is a brand new table to gather around with people that aren't like us. Jesus did not say, all people will know you are my disciples when you all vote alike. Now, I got an oomph and a silence. That doesn't mean it's not true, because it is. All right. <laughs> he did not say all people will know you're my disciples when you all dress alike. Thank God for that, right? No, he says all people will know you're mine when you love one another. See, that's the new table that we all gather around. A table not based on our appearance or our skin color or our political preferences or our marital status or our economic status, but around the table, hear me, of the commandment of our risen Lord and God and King to love one another. A few years ago, uh, when I really committed my life to Christ at the age of 19, it was like two, three, four years ago, max, or something like that, uh, I, w- I was born again uh, into this multi-ethnic, multi-racial campus ministry at the University of Houston, go Cougs, right? Uh, soon after that, though, I moved into this house with this strange group of people called Christians. They were strange. Anyway, uh, and in that house, there was a group, there was a house full of people that were nothing like me. There was this real uh, party guy there from Sri Lanka. There was this percussion guy uh, getting, sorry, percussion people, getting his master's degree in percussion performance. Now, I don't know what a person does with a master's degree in percussion performance, but whatever you do, he did it. But anyway, all I know is he kept a beat like on every flat surface there was in the house. But in particular, one of my roommates was this African-American guy who, because of very real pain in his past, because of racial trauma in his past from people who looked a lot like me, he did not like, you know, pasty SPF 70 wearing folks in particular like me. He really hated athletes. I was one at the time. So I had a couple of strikes going against me going into our relationship. But this guy, he had to be not only one of the strangest guys I live with, but the most spiritually sensitive. All right. He had this little corner of the room where he set up a table, had a black uh, uh, tablecloth on it, some candles. He would burn incense at all kind of hours of the night. And one day I had a number of these other freshman athletes from U of H that came to our house. These guys on the football team, big dudes, they had just come to faith in Christ. And so they come over. I was showing them our house, walking around. The roommate whose room that was, was not there at the time. And when they walked in and they saw his table and tablecloth and candles and incense, they began to make fun of it said stuff like, man, what's that like, like a shrine? Like, what's he worshiping there? You know, like, is he going to sacrifice something here when he gets home? And so anyway, they, they, what a weirdo. And they went on and on. And when he got home a little bit later from work, he walked into the house, right past him into his room. We could hear him from the other room begin to sniff. He came back out and asked us all, he says, who's been in my room? It smells like mockery. it smells like mockery now of course those guys never messed with him ever again they never let alone went into his room uh and he of course was a different kind of dude but over the course of our next several years together he was really the first one to break into my 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 all white world uh challenged me with words like race and class and privilege and all those words what table i sat with and why It was so hard, so painful, but I grew to love him and I grew to care for him deeply because I knew I could see he loved the same Jesus that I did. 
and vice versa. And so relating to him and being a part of that group, that table right there, that group changed my life and formed this thesis within me. This is part of the reason I do what I do. Here's my thesis in light of 1 John 2. Let me share this with you. I believe that multi-ethnic, multi-racial churches like this one have the power to bring healing to our nation. In case you don't believe it, I understand. There's actually some growing research-oriented sociological proof of that. Let me give you one example. There's a guy by the name of Michael Emerson. Dr. Emerson was a sociology professor, first at Rice. Now he's at Park University in Chicago. He's done the largest decades-long investigation of church and race that there is. And here's what he's found. It's fairly incredible. He wrote this. He says, Involvement in multiracial congregations over time... Everybody say, over time. Over time, time, that's crucial. Leads to fundamental differences. Friendship patterns change. We find that people in multiracial congregations have significantly more friendships across race than do other Americans. For example, for those attending, catch this, racially homogenous congregations, 83% said that most or all their friends were the same race as them. But if he didn't, he says, if you didn't go to any church at all, 70% said that most or all their friends were the same race as them. Now, we've got to pause here for a second because this is really tough. And then there's some good news. All right, but this is the tough part. He's saying you're more likely to have racially diverse friendships to sit around a different kind of table if you don't go to a church where everybody looks just like you. And he goes on to say, this is really hard. He says, sometimes, sometimes homogenous churches can be a deterrent to social and racial progress. You say, why? He says, well, this, it's simple. He says, your treasure is where your heart is. And so when you're around people like you all the time, your care, your love, your concern, your finances, your treasure goes into that group, into that group of people. And over time, you just begin to love them. It's not on purpose. No one means to do it. It's just the effect, he says, of only being the same table as people just like you. But then he says this, but for those attending multiracial congregations, he writes, there is a dramatic difference. Only 36% of people attending racially mixed congregations said most or all their friends were the same race as them. And we found that those 36% were relatively recent arrivals that are racially mixed congregations. Indeed, we found that by far the most important factor in people having racially diverse relationships that's in light of the America, our nation, is whether they attended a racially mixed congregation. Partially due to the greater relationships across race, involvement in multiracial congregations leads to attitudinal change, change toward closing the racial gap and racial attitudes. He concludes with this. The implication for a racially divided but changing nation is clear. In contemporary times, multiracial congregations offer a promising path forward. Now, that ought to be, I think, encouraging to you. And you say, well, okay, Morgan, if that's true, if that really is true, well, then why don't more people either A, belong to them or B, more church leaders start them? And the answer to that question is the answer that I found. And the answer that I found is probably the answer that's sort of rolling around in a lot of your heads. And the answer to that question, why don't more people start them or belong to them, is this. It's really deep. You ready? It's really hard. It's just really hard. A church with any level of diversity is hard. A church where there are, for example, marrieds, singles, teens, students. It's just hard many times. Not a lot of it that week or maybe even that month is like aimed right at you. 
in your thin sliced version of your life. So uh, a, lot of, a lot of times people say, well, I'm not, I don't feel appreciated in a diverse environment. Oh, well, let me tell you, do you know who else doesn't feel appreciated? Ready? Every parent ever, including your parents, the parents of you, did not feel appreciated by you. Here's why. Because appreciation is not the foundation for family. If you want appreciation, don't try to create family. I got four kids, I'll tell you, from the start. Don't try to create family. Jesus didn't say, though, appreciate one another. What did he say? Love one another, especially when people aren't like you. And especially when there's ethnic diversity, which there is here. And if you stick around here, let me tell you what's probably going to happen to you if it hasn't happened already. You are going to drive up some Sunday morning, and you're going to see out in the parking lot here, or a parking lot B across the street. Thank God for Chewy's building us a parking lot, right? Uh, a parking lot, you're going to find a car with a bumper sticker on it. And on that bumper sticker is going to be the name of a cause you know is wrong for the country or the name of a political candidate that you could not be paid enough money to vote for, unless maybe you're a college student, then it's negotiable, right? You've got loans that are coming due. And the candidate you're pretty sure actually is the Antichrist, you know, if you could just be given enough time to prove it. So the point is right there before you even step foot inside the church facility, you're already confused because you're thinking, is, is this a church, right? Is this a church? I thought there were Christians here. There are Christians here. But, but of course, being the mature person that you are or that you were, you, you shrugged it off and you thought, well, maybe they were just like lost today. They're lost today. They don't know why they're here. I'll pray for them in the service and they'll get saved, right? But then after the service, on the way out to your car, you see the person getting in the car with the bumper sticker. And you're like, I'm pretty sure that was like one of the prayer leaders there at that church or a staff member or maybe Pastor Peter. I don't know. Or that really nice usher or greeter. And before, before they, you, you liked them, but on the way out, you're not just confused, but you're, you're irritated. So what do you do? What do you do at this point? Well, I think you, there's, you have three options. The first thing you could say to that person is, here it is, you could say, you could ask them, how could you call yourself a Christian and vote for that person? Yeah. Or second, you could say nothing to them. You could just smile. You could go back home. You could throw massive shade online on Facebook or social media about Christians who refuse to vote, uh, you know, Christian wise are looking at the gospel when they vote, implying, of course, you do, and they don't, right? Or you could do none of those, and you could go back. You go back, like a number of my friends have, to a spiritually homogenous, politically homogenous environment where everybody pats you on the back for your political convictions because they're all the same as theirs. They may or may not be biblical, but you'll never know because you'll never be challenged. Now, those three options are easy. They take no time at all. And I believe, up to a point, they can only serve to further divide, polarize our nation. But, but, but let me encourage you. When you see that bumper sticker, when you read that thing online, that post, that, that, that tweet, whatever, and you don't flame, when you don't blow them up, and you choose not to ignore them, but you dig in. You don't retreat to something more comfortable. You dig into something way less comfortable, perhaps, than what you grew up with. And you say, God, I want to be a part of something I believe can heal the nation, and you begin to ask questions like to a person, to, 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 to that person, why are you so upset about this? Or you begin to ask questions like, well, why aren't you more upset about this? And you don't go away, but you dig in now, now, now. 
we begin to get somewhere together. You say, well, how will that help? Well, to which I would say first, because those three options don't. And second, because that's the solution the Apostle Paul commands us to take in difficult relational environments. Because he writes both in in Romans 15 and 1 Corinthians 8 to groups of, he says, racially mixed Christians. When it comes time to do or say something in an environment where you feel like you're right and they're wrong, Paul calls them the strong and the weak. He says, here is what you do. You ready? Here's the solution. Accept one another. Oh, as Christ has accepted you. You're thinking, that's it, Paul. That's all you can give me. What's Paul doing? He's just repeating Jesus' new commandment. Love one another. The Bible's solution, in part, is a relational one. And let me tell you, for those of you who know stuff, I mean, it's not just relational. It's also structural. It's also about undoing the centuries of bad thinking, racialized thinking, that, where we aren't hitting the mark culturally. So the Bible's solution is more than relational, but it's not less either. John says, verse 9, the one who says he's in the light, and yet he hates his brother. It's in the darkness till now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light. There's no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and keeps on walking in darkness, doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John is saying the cure for our blindness is a place where we love one another. It brings light into the world. See, Jesus has given us a new foundation for our relationships you know, for those of you who are business people in here, you know, people come up to you, your student, your fellow students come up to you, they ask you how your classes are going, you business people, you know, folks talk shop, they ask you how your business is going, and sometimes in my neck of the woods, my world, prospective church planners or pastors will come up to me and they'll say, you know what, Morgan, I would love for our church to be diverse as well. And I say, oh, Really? And I begin to share with them, because some of you know this, the very, the very real joys and the very real pains of what it is that you do here, of what we do at Mosaic, and what it costs us sometimes, what it has cost me over the years, because people will say, uh, Morgan, you've forgotten Jesus, which is crazy, because all I'm trying to do is walk like Jesus and open up tables for all people to gather around him and meet him. Or people say, Morgan, you've understood the gospel, which is crazy, because all I'm trying to do is make clear and plain Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for Jesus. Jew and Gentile for all, all people groups together where people say, Morgan, sometimes, you know, I think you've got like white guilt or you're like a white, think you're a, you think you're a white savior, which is crazy because I'm nobody's savior. I can't even save my own documents in Microsoft Word. Man, I can't even save time to go to the gym. I can barely save money. I can't, that's why my wife handles it, thank God, right? I say this, listen, listen, listen. This has cost me friends. This has cost me money. But we don't do this because it's a growth strategy. We do it because it's a discipleship strategy to follow Jesus more closely. And so when I say to them, this won't grow your church, but it will complicate your church because love is complicated and love is messy, but love is the command. When I say all that to them, I can tell now they're not so sure they want it. 
See, Jesus' new kind of table isn't a growth thing. Hear me. It's a discipleship thing, discipleship strategy. But here's what I believe. I believe, I believe this. It can turn into growth. It can bring people to Jesus because he himself said it would. He said, when I am lifted up, when I'm exalted, I will draw all people to myself. And he said, all people will know you're mine when you all love one another. And let me tell you, if you read the statistics, you know this is true. A whole generation of young people have walked away from church, faith, God, Bible, Jesus because of the church's inability to do this and get this right. And let me tell you, I want them back. I want them back. I want them back for this church. I want them back for our church. I want them back for Jesus's church. So, 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 how do we do that then? Where does the power for that come from? How do we get, how do we keep us all at that table together? Well, let me tell you, it doesn't come from looking at fads or trends or even conferences. It certainly doesn't come from reading that news feed you got. It comes from keeping at the center of us what brought and kept the first group, hear me, of Christian believers together for that first Christmas. Think about it. Those people together at that first nativity scene, they in a way were the first believers. They saw Jesus first. Think about it. Who was there at that first table at the nativity? In a way, come on, shepherds. They were economically poor, socially outcast, religiously unfit and unclean. It was Mary, a single pregnant, now single teenage mother. It was Joseph, a poor, unsuccessful businessman. Later, they were magi. They were older. They were wealthy, highly educated, a different ethnic group than Mary and Joseph. And yeah, I know they weren't there on the first Christmas night, but they didn't see the star that night. It led them to Jesus. It led them to the person, the same person that brought the shepherds and Mary and Joseph and all the angels together. In a way, that group, come on, you've got to see it, is the first group of believers in Jesus. And you would never have picked that group to show up at the same table together, a table with a baby human God king in the center. And do you know, when you look at it, what do you see? Come on, you see rich, you see poor, you see young, you see old, you see outcasts, you see in class, you see wealthy, you see different ethnic groups, all from the moment the gospel entered the world, they're gathered around Jesus of Nazareth, worshiping, loving, bowing their knee. They're all bowing. And church, when we do that, When we gather around Jesus, we remember he was our true light in the darkness. When we remember that we, like John said, we used to walk in hatred toward God and toward our brother and sister, but he came to show us a different way to walk, a different table to sit at. When we remember, like John said, that you were blind and lost on your own until darkness came into the world. And we remember that one day that God would send himself and the baby would die to redeem us. And we keep that right in the middle. Now, now we begin to be the kind of place that makes space at tables for people not like us. Let me tell you, we're not redeemed by more separation, more polarization, selfishness, focus our own needs and wants and preferences. That's where we are in large part as a nation. We need a vision beyond ourselves to set the table for those who aren't here yet by walking as Jesus walked. And we do that when we love one another. When we come and we're seated, like we're going to be here in a moment, we're seated around his table of grace together. 
we make space for those who are to come. Hope you can say amen to that. Let me pray for you, church, and we're going to go to his table.